this is masala history's podcast uh, i am deepthi murali and i have with me a special guest jina de cruz and today we're going to be talking about tipu sultan of mysore jina Yes, Deepthi, I'm so excited to join the podcast today. So Tipu seems to be the man of the hour because he's uh, in a lot of people's minds. Uh, looks like in since 2015, uh, when the state government of Karnataka decided to celebrate Tipu Jayanti officially on November 10, um, specifically the right wing groups uh, have opposed any glorification of this erstwhile ruler of Mysore. and there's been a lot of controversy regarding this figure um and there is a lot of conflicting opinions going around so and we have all heard about the legend and myths of tipu growing up as well so i'm really interested in knowing more about who this man is why this controversy surrounding him and what's true and what's not so let's get going uh, growing up in kerala both jina and i would have we had some sort of relationship with tipu sultan's legends he famously invaded most of north kerala during his uh, reign and he is popularly known in myths to be an exceptionally violent ruler who really uh, massacred a lot of the populations in uh, north malabar and pur and within within other parts of south india in his campaigns but is that uh, really true and how does a king of from the 18th century become both called as one of india's first freedom fighters and at the same time be called first by the british as an oriental despot and by other uh, factions and groups in india as a violent king who was primarily waging a war on be- behalf of islam so um these questions all seem relevant today especially since padmavat just released and there is this huge controversy about the movie and so there is a lot of issues surrounding historical figures and what happens is more than history there is a, a ton of myth that we come to accept as history uh, and so this podcast is really to separate the history from the myth and to then talk about the issues um, surrounding this legendary historical figure tipu sultan Deepthi, that's great that you bring up that point. And to be completely honest, by today's standards, uh, Tipu Sultan is clearly not a darling or a sweetheart. He killed a lot of people, maimed a lot of people, tortured, uh, even raped, uh, to expand his kingdom, basically. So he is no way by today's standards um, moral, uh, sometimes not even ethical. Uh, but he is widely regarded as a good person. um statesman a good strategist um somebody who was on point on military strategy financial or economic stability of his kingdom um he was very savvy uh for his times um it it seems like he he was one of the few people who kind of was in, interested in scientific advances apparently he collected barometers had rockets in his kingdom so this this person is not just as a ruler but even as a historical figure is is interesting right so i'm really curious to kind of start from the beginning who was he uh, it seems like um haider ali was his father who haider ali who was the army chief of the wadiar kings uh apparently asserted their power so it's not as if uh tipu is coming from a royal lineage is right, that correct right. for for um about three generations the men of his family served uh, the mysore king king um working in the armies as uh, sometimes as uh, quartermasters i shouldn't say quartermasters that's a new term but like you know the equivalent of a quartermaster within a fort um uh, he they worked um, their way up the sort of the military ladder uh, haider uh, became one of the key um, ally for uh, the wadiar king krishna raja wadiar 2 in fact rescuing Vodia II from his commander in chief who tried to actually assert the power in 1760 or 1759 
1769, Haridur actually comes to the help of Odeyar too and basically helps prop him up, but essentially takes over the power from uh, the Odeyars. Um, he gets ousted again in 1761. He f- flees uh, Mysore um, under threat for his life. Tipu Sultan, who's already born, is uh, taken prisoner along with his brother and, and sister and mother. Oh, whoa. He was taken prisoner? How old was he then? Yeah, yeah. So in 61, he was born in 1750, so he was 11 years old. And so the family actually uh, becomes prisoner uh, to the Wodeyars while um, Haider regroups and comes back and then takes up power once again. And essentially, Wodeyar too becomes a pensioner under Haider. Uh, the fact of the matter remains that if Haider didn't do it, uh, Nandaraj uh, Kalale, who was the commander-in-chief of Wodeyar too, would have actually taken over the power from the Wodeyar. So Mysore was under threat from multiple factions within their own military and administrative units. And it was a fa- flailing um, state. So, so that's how sort of Tipu uh, becomes who he is. Uh, he's actually born in 1750 on the 20th of November. He is born near Devanahalli, probably around uh, where Bangalore International Airport is currently. He was born right after Hyder uh, conquered that region from the Marathas a year uh, earlier, like in 1749. While he has no um, uh, royal ancestry, he his father's grandfather seems to have been an Arab who came by sea from the Middle Eastern region. His grand, great-grandmother and grandmother were Nawayati Muslims. He was also a Pathan from, from his mother's side. So it seems like he had like this sort of ancient Islamic lineage uh, that he was very proud of. But he himself used to call... Uh, uh, call him a son of the soil, as in a third-generation Mysorean who was born and brought up in the soil of Mysore and as a man who knew everything that there is to know about the country that he's from. That's very interesting because uh, there's no doubt that uh, Tipu was very proud of his lineage and um, held himself to high standards on keeping that afloat and probably that was the primary reason he wanted to kind of expand his kingdom uh, and went above and beyond sort of going through this violent ways to kind of um, amass more wealth and land. It's interesting to kind of go through that journey but along the way he also becomes this really controversial figure where there are people who accuse him uh, of probably one of the first rulers in India, maybe South India, he is the first ruler who declared his state as Islamist state. Is that correct? I don't know if he did that. Hmm. So, well, yes and no, I guess. But this happens. At the beginning, his state is called Sarkar-e-Haiduri. Hmm. Uh, it was the realm of Haidar. It was only after 1792, after the uh, third um, Anglo-Mysore war, when he has to give away, and we'll talk about this in detail in a little bit, but he has to give away his sons as ransom almost to Lord Cornwallis, the governor general of the East India Company, when he mm. loses uh, this war terribly, that he changes uh, the, what he calls Mysore from uh, Sarkari Haidari to Sarkari, and I'm going to massacre this word, it's Khudadad, the realm of God. So from realm of Haider, it suddenly becomes realm of God after this pivotal moment of failure in his career. It was uh, in 1792, actually, that he calls his realm as as God-given. Uh, this very famous scholar, Kate uh, Brittlebank, who actually um, says that uh, the nature of Islamicism in Tipu's rule and administration really happens post that third Anglo-Mysore war. So, so yes, yeah, no, there is uh, uh, an Islamicist leaning, but it comes much later, considering that he actually ascended the throne in 1780s, yeah. This whole dedicating the realm to God happens 10 years later, right? Hmm. It's, it's, let's, I probably skipped a little bit ahead, 
before I intended. So let's maybe walk through that journey of how he, essentially he was a teenage king, right? Um, it, and you, you mentioned earlier that he was a prisoner uh, at the very impressionable, impressionable age of 11. I, I can't even begin to imagine what, what goes in the mind of a child who becomes prisoner at that age and is subjected to immense cruelty. Yes, the, the, the same goes along in multiple parts of the world even today. But in that context and time, it must have been really uh, consequential uh, in the way he developed his personality and his later conduct as a king. Um, Yes, by 15, Tipu is already seeing uh, battle action. So he's already on the battlefield. Obviously, he's being chaperoned by the generals of um, Hyder Ali's army, including his maternal uncle, um, Uncle Reza Ali Khan. Uh, but he's already, like, you know, fighting the British at, at the age of 15. Actually, he's fighting the British at the age of 17. At 15, he is fighting the Poligar of Balim, who had rebelled. And so his first honors he gets when he takes effective action against this Poligar. And he actually receives, like, 500 horses and land grants in Mysore and Tamil Nadu for, um, for his uh, bravery. So by 15, he's already an adult male, right? He's going into battle. In in many ways, he's already battle-hardened. Um, and so uh, uh, by 182, when he actually uh, ascends the throne, he's already, he's only 32 years old, but like he's already very, very set in his ideas, a lot of which he's learned on the road. Um, when Haider Ali uh, passes away, near Andhra Pradesh, actually, near Chittor, where he was uh, battling uh, the British. Tipu Sultan is in Malabar, and he turns back and moves away to go all the way to Andhra. By the time Tipu gets there, it's been three weeks, and they keep Haider's death a secret until Tipu arrives, because they don't want, you know, the army bolting. And so this is this is all um, a very different setting from what we are used to thinking about in terms of uh, the ruling class uh, in, in in a contemporary way. And even for um, for um, 18th century, uh, Tipu Sultan is a different type of a king, right? By 18th century, uh, especially in the Western world, um, enli- the Enlightenment ideas have already taken root. Uh, there's already a constitutional reform happening um, in England. And so when the British actually call Tipu a despot, it's because they think of him as old-fashioned and as an old model of kingship that should actually be retired. So anyway, like, you know, Tipu already had, like, you know, a great life. But, but like, this, I wanted to go back a minute because you mentioned that, you know, he was really violent and, you know, his army uh, probably sort of raped and pillaged which they did. Um, I just wanted to bring it up that when when Tipu died and uh, Sri Rangapatna, his capital in Mysore, was act- actually fell to the British, they looted everything, not just Tipu's palace. They looted every single house and every single resident. And there are actually eyewitness accounts of women sitting without clothes outside their houses crying because, you know, they have been pillaged. They were probably a Assaulted and raped by uh, okay, that, that's that's a good point you raise, and um, I want to kind of go a little more into detail about this. So, a lot of times when we talk about historical figures, we have to rely on the evidence which we have at this point, which may or may not be the most. Um, I want to use this word non-judgmental or completely unbiased, because it is obviously written by whoever commissioned. Uh, to write that particular version of the history. So let's walk through a little bit about who has written about Tipu. Obviously, the British did not have a very complimentary view about this figure. Uh, There are more uh, recent historians who have uh, explored his life and uh, character who has a little more kinder view towards him. So there are these different conflicting accounts about this person and what he has done in the past. And uh, this this happens. Like we talked about earlier, by today's standards, none of them will pass 
on the morality test. Um, uh, we wouldn't like them for sure. Um, but yeah. <laughs> in, in the, it, it was a different time. It was a different context. Yeah. And everybody was doing a lot of these things. So to be as objective as possible, um, we have to look at the evidence, what we have as of now. So what has been written about Tipu? Who has uh, wrote about him? Did he write about himself? And I'm curious about um, all that. There's a lot to talk about all that. <laughs> but <laughs> Tipu himself, we have actually a couple of things uh, that he wrote in Persian or he, it was written in his court. Uh, one is the Book of Dreams, uh, which was written by Tipu himself. Mm. Um, and this was a book where he actually... Um, jotted down dreams as part of a system of dream analysis, which was considered science at, 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 in the 18th century, and it is a long history. But this was also a, a, not just a dream analysis book. It was a sort of like a secret manuscript that the Tipu kept hidden from everyone. It also had names of people who had died in different wars, uh, like the Travancore War that had happened um, um, in 17. In the 1780s, um, all that, that information was in this book and it was found um, after Tipu died by a British official and therefore now it's in the British Library. So you can actually go to British Library and check this manuscript out. Um, so that's one. Mm -hmm. um, he also, in his court, uh, wrote a military treatise called Fat ul Mujahideen. So that's where uh, a lot of Tipu's information on his sort of uh, military strategy and the Islamic nature of his um, administration comes from. Um, um, a lot of uh, scholars who work on Tipu actually refer to these sources, uh, one of them being Kate Brittlebank. Mm -hmm. She uh, consults both British sources as well as French sources. Um, Tipu did have a friendly relationship with the French as opposed to uh, the British, whom he considered his greatest enemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so her sources that uh, include like sort of j uh, journals written by French governors and other officials are more sympathetic towards Tipu. The British sources, most of them paint him negatively right from the beginning. And that's, that's, that's actually natural, right? Mm. He is their mortal enemy. He's like the biggest thorn on their side of total domination of South India. Like, you know, they are there, they've got the Nawab of Hyderabad in their pockets, they are like sort of working with the Marathas, sometimes not, but Marathas are also equally threatened by Tipu, so they're mm -hmm. amenable towards working with the British, and so all the other sort of South Indian kingdoms are ready to play with British, whereas Tipu is saying, I will not let the British come anywhere near my kingdom, to the point that he's saying, I do not want a British resident in my court. All the other courts uh, at this time in India had a British resident who effectively, uh, you know, interfered in all the courtly matters in all the Indian kingdoms. But I also want to kind of point out that was, that's still pre-colonial era. The British Raj, as we know it, has not been established yet. So he probably did think that he was a viable contender and he can uh, be on equal footing against the British. He probably didn't think uh, about the magnitude of their um, army or, you know, economic assets at that point, I guess. And, and, and the funny thing is, he probably might have had a chance if not for the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Ah. Uh, and <laughs> we think of ourselves as such a global world, but this is how linked 18th century world is. I mentioned the French Revolution because Tipu really thinks that he will get French support and he actually sends an embassy to France uh, in 1787, two years before the French Revolution breaks out. But obviously, because the French were so busy with uh, their revolution, they did not send help. Uh, in time, which is why uh, Tipu loses the fourth Anglo-Mysore war because he doesn't get any support from the French. That's happening on one side. But uh, the main contender for Tipu and who finally defeats Tipu, Lord Cornwallis, the governor general of India, he comes to India after having failed miserably in, in, in the United States or rather North America. Um, so this was like his rebound of battle. <laughs> 
Yes, yes. He had come to India to regain his reputation because he had actually surrendered Yorktown uh, and, and thereby many people in Britain thought that he lost uh, the Americas. So, so, or he lost North America um, to, in the American Revolution. So he, Cornwallis comes to India with this sort of urge to regain his reputation. And he said, Tipu, he's my biggest enemy and I will get him down. Better, making it all better for his uh, for his empire, and so both the American, the failure of the British in the American Revolution and the French Revolution screwed Tipu. And Cornwallis was expressly sent to India for this purpose because um, in the Second Anglo-Mysore War, okay. British loses terribly like it was such an embarrassment that cartoonists were making like you know these rk lakshman type political drawings of <laughs> british people you know being eaten by tipu's tiger and things like that so it was a major political embarrassment um, and in many ways indirectly uh, the india pit pits act of india in 1784 uh, came uh, into being because of the second anglo mysore war it was not just because of the war, but it, it was a contributing factor to the the major change in the administrative policies uh, of the Britain regarding India. Um, and so, um, so going back to this idea of the sources, yes, we do have some sources from Tipu or Tipu's court, mostly in Persian, but then other accounts, most of the other accounts actually come from French sources or the British sources, some of the sources being sort of these personal accounts of prisoners, uh, British prisoners who were taken by Tipu and who lived in Mysore that way. Sure. So it, it can't be any, none of these records, as you said, can be taken at face value, but this is what we have of Tipu to look at today. was Tipu uh, as a person? Did he marry? Whom did he marry? What were his habits like? Uh, he married a Navarati Muslim from his father's side and Rugaya Begum, one of Haider's commander's daughters, whom his mother preferred. So it looks like he satisfied both their intentions, which is... Yeah. And I think he married a couple more times. That's interesting. So was it, was it really a political move or was it more... I'm trying to kind of piece that information right. together. What is the significance of marrying a Navayati Muslim? Um, so there are two things. One, I think uh, marriage is the way you completely become a king. Oh. So you have to be married in order to be like a complete man or, you know, maybe as a model king. So that's there. The Navayati Muslim, as I mentioned before, his... Um, grandmother and great-grandmother were both Navayati Muslim women. Um, they were both um, actually daughters of people who worked in um, uh, Sufi shrines. So there is like a Sufi connection to Tipu's uh, family. And so they have a long history uh, with uh, Navayatis and Sufis. So uh, that's just why it was important for Haider, uh, for Tipu to marry uh, a Navayati uh, woman. Interesting. He seems to have been actually a family man. He probably had four wives, uh, which was normal for the time. He seems to have had many women in the Zanana, which was also normal for Indian kings, Hindu and Muslim at the time. Uh, and he seems to have had maybe eight sons and about seven or nine daughters. I can't remember the exact number. Did he have a Hindu wife? Or were they all Muslim? A lot of his ministers were. Um, the people who were advisors were. Yeah, uh, there yeah. seems to have been um, Hindus around, for sure. Um, his prime minister, Tipu's prime minister was Purnaya, um, who was obviously Hindu. Hmm. Uh, he had a standing instruction that when they serve food in his court, and if there are non-Muslims, then they, the non-Muslims never be served food that they don't eat. So uh, he made it a point to actually instruct his um, officials to serve food based on what sure. their religion permitted. So th there seems to have been um, a lot of uh, inclusivity and respect that he showed people from 
um, other religion. And he was also highly educated as well. Haider made sure that he was educated, uh, not just in Quran or Islamic jurisprudence, but also in languages, science, philosophy, economics, and so on. And I think I misquoted earlier, I'm not sure. Did he speak French at all, or was it mostly Persian and the South Indian languages uh, like Telugu, Kannada, uh, possibly Tamil and Malayalam? Uh, he his generals were of uh, Telugu speaking, Kannada speaking, Tamil speaking, mm-hmm. um, Muslims, Brahmins um, of other castes. Um, he certainly did uh, have like a multicultural, uh, plural society in which he interact. He lived and interacted with. Yeah, the we actually know what Tipu did on a daily basis, <laughs> like what his habits were, uh, which is which I was sort of like the most interesting. Part to be, often we don't get a chance to look at historical figures and see what they did on a daily basis. He began his day with prayers and ablutions, and then he did some exercise and had a light breakfast. He seems to have been a very early riser. Then he would actually go and have consultations uh, and give instructions, respond to correspondence, just like we do when we get up in the morning and do emails over coffee, something like that. Like, <laughs> is how I'm thinking about. I like the way you put it, Deepi. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's about correspondence every morning, right? <laughs> and then. Um, and then he actually meets with astrologers and physicians to check up on his health. Just like today, we go for annual physical checkup and go to the psych- for psychological counseling. I think astro- astrologers were the psychologists of the uh, 18th century. Um, after he finished with his health checkup, he would act- inspect fresh produce from his you know, land. And then he would choose for his kitchen, the, the larger court kitchens and the Zanana kitchens. And then the rest of them would be sold because that makes a little bit of money for the king. And then at 9 a.m. So this is all before 9 a.m. This man is already up and doing all these things before 9 a.m. At 9 a.m. He actually shares a larger meal with some of his officials and some of his sons. Hmm, interesting. And then um, he would head for the public audience hall where he would give Dalbar like the Mughal kings and other Hindu kings did before him. Um, and the Dalbar would end at 3 p.m. Then he would go for a nap. And he would nap for an hour. The siesta. For sure. Um, then he gets up from his nap and after an hour and then does his prayers again. Then he goes to inspect his troops, uh, building projects, foundries, all sorts of things. He talks to merchants, sees to the trade, whether that's happening regularly in his markets. And then after sunset, he comes home and spends time yes. with his family. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. It almost sounds like we are watching a movie. Oh, yeah. It also seems like, by all accounts, not just uh, the accounts that's favorable towards him, but even the British accounts, if I'm not mistaken, uh, kind of suggests this. He was oh, a yeah. very intellectually curious oh, yeah. um, person with a good scientific temper. It seems like he was also a collector of all these nice gadgets, like you know people do these days. They collect cars or um, you know um, electronics. So it seems like he collected. Um, all these newer uh, gadgets like the te- telescope or the barometer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would have it, yes. And I also, I also kind of uh, read somewhere that he he was very tuned into um, basically how, how to kind of maximize his resources, I guess. So it seems like there, once there was a deposit of lead found in his territory, then he asked the official to look for silver also because these elements are often found near each other. So it seems like he was really well-read and uh, on point about things like that, which did contribute towards um, the success of his uh, kingdom, I guess. Um, yeah. No, no, definitely. Uh, this man actually decided that the way to go was uh, to, to actually succeed um, as an empire in his time was to build a naval force. And then because his um, kingdom was uh, so uh, blessed with natural resources, um, was able to get all the uh, uh, raw materials to build ships, to make weaponry within uh, his kingdom. Um, at some point, I think uh, Brittle Bank, I think, talks about uh, some 10 guns where 10 muskets were made per day 
in, in the ammunition depots in Mysore, Bangalore and Bednore. And there were foundries in these places that also manufacture sort of bronze cannons. And so rockets, they manufactured. He, he was probably one of the first rulers in India yeah. uh, who was able to manufacture rockets, which is pretty impressive It, it is um, for that time. Yeah. He also, uh, when he sent the embassy to France in 1787, he requested that they send him an engineer, a mirror maker, a designer, and they actually send him all these people. So in the late 1780s, Tipu is thinking about new strategies to effectively rule his land, right? And that doesn't get talked about as much as all these other the violence and the atrocity of mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, expansionist policies Titi, i got to ask and this has been nagging in my mind what's the deal with tipu and his tiger yeah <laughs> it seems like the tiger motif is everywhere oh yeah and What's the deal with that? I should mention that all the information that I'm about to provide comes through uh, the great Susan Strong, um, who is a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum um, in um, in London. Um, she has this great book called The Tipu's Tigers. And she has done this extensive research on the use of uh, basically tiger stripes and and the face of this Mysore tiger in Tipu's clothes, Tipu's army costumes, in Tipu's tents and cushions and on the walls of his palaces. Actually, if you go to um, Mysore or even the Bangalore Summer Palace, you can actually see the what is called the Babri uh, motif. Like a very specialized pattern that is seen on Mysorean uh, tigers of the time, like the tiger design of the time. to answer your question the 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 tiger motif actually has multiple meanings for one it has associations with like sort of the hindu mm. god shakti you know and uh, therefore associations with valor and you know bravery but also um, tiger is a motif for the prophet's uh, cousin and son-in-law and so there is an islamic connection to the tiger as well there is also like scholars also talk about how like this is a largely illiterate population that you know um, tipu or any of these other uh, kings of the time were ruling over so the communications is best done over visual imagery so then motifs like the tiger and also the sun motif was used a lot i mean so these kind of uh, motifs help communicate cosmology of the kingdom to to like a larger populace mm. so i think that's why the tiger was very important um to tipu so important that uh, you want to talk about the massy tiger um have you seen it it's actually pretty fantastic it's a it's a, right now the victoria and albert museum in london uh, it's the first thing that you see when you enter their south asia collections yeah this this thing was like a musical organ that looks like a tiger eating a british soldier production <laughs> So the so in its heyday you, you could play it as an organ but but you could also like they would crank like an instrument in the back and you could hear the tiger roar while it was mauling this british official uh, also obviously like a wood sculpture of a british official yeah and you can hear the british official sort of cry in horror it was like this really bizarre musical instrument <laughs> slash like you know this toy tiger like mall toy british official the british actually used that as an example of his cruelty but that that's a good probably the way to come back to the most hot topic the controversies regarding uh, tipu so th- there are like multiple angles of looking at it right some regard tipu as a hero as a freedom fighter who fought valiantly against the british the great enemy um but there are some who i want to use the word terrorist but he he was um viewed as an islamist apparently uh he did destroy temples which like you aptly pointed out um a lot of other um rulers did as well uh sort of are we supposed to consider him a hero are we supposed to regard him as a freedom fighter because he did stand up against mm-hmm. the british yeah. and uh, put up defenses against them tipu sort of uh, stood 
apart in that respect because of the violence of his response to the British. Uh, based on all accounts, um, the various descriptions that he himself wrote of uh, the British, he hated them for their duplicity, physically actualizes hatred in the Massey Tiger musical organ, which you mentioned earlier. Um, was the violence against them um, just an Islamic fanaticism that he viewed them as kafirs and some uh, somebody against the, his own faith, or was it part of his military expansion strategy, or was he standing up as a king? What, what do you, what does historical accounts or the objective accounts about him point towards? To was he really an Islamic fanatic? Fanatic. Hear your take on this too, actually, because um, as you said, it differs from people to pe- person to person, um, also from scholar to scholar, and it is about who reads it and how you read the sources in many ways. But but like um, this interesting, I, and I didn't know this until I was doing research for this podcast. But um, Kate Brittobank actually makes a really important point about. This change in Tipu's sort of Islamic um, habits, like he was always a very devout Muslim. There's no doubt about it. He always did his prayers. He tried to convert as many people whenever possible. Um, But the violent conversions um, often happened only in areas that he was capturing um, newly. It wasn't happening in his own realm. Like in his own realm, he let... Uh, let Hindus be. In fact, there is a lot of uh, records um, about how um, he was an extremely pious man who gave, who patronized uh, dargahs as well as temples as well as mosques. Um, in fact, uh, in the Calicut archives, there are actually records that show that he gave 67 grants of rent-free lands to temples and mosques in Calicut, Ernard, uh, Betadnad, I don't know where Betadnad is, and Chaugat. So he uh, literally uh, gave away temp- uh, land grants to temples as much as he did mosques uh, in, in even conquered regions. So this is uh, very much against what we know of Tipu, especially as a, uh, an invader and as a person, uh, a violent extremist in North Malabar. He seems to have the records uh, of him patronizing some of the temples in these areas. He was also a huge uh, um, believer of the Swami of the Sringeri Matha. So um, when, in fact, Sringeri Matha was uh, attacked by Marathas, he said those who, uh, those who actually attack this Matha is going to get, suffer in, in the near future. And if you actually... Uh, destroy um, the Jagat Guru's property, which is what he called the Swami of Sringeri, then, you know, you're not going to get any peace in the Kali age and, you know, in the Kali Yuga and that, you know, your line of descent is going to get destroyed. So he was very vociferously against Marathas attacking um, Sringeri Matha. So uh, that that actually is very different from the way we think of... uh, Tipu Sultan as an Islamicist, right? As he matured as a person and a king, right? So that's very important. The way the decisions you make um, towards the end or towards the end of your um, career is vastly different from how we enter in as an intern at a company. So it's probably... Not the best analogy, but um, I think he was a shrewd military strategist. And a lot of his um, so-called religious extremism also seems to be um, peppered with that shrewd strategy. Uh, So it's interesting, like you said, in his realm, in his own kingdom, he made sure uh, there was some semblance of equality and equity versus when he went out, ventured, uh, tried to invade other lands mm-hmm. to add them towards his kingdom. He had a completely different attitude altogether, right? And it seems like even the punishments meted out to prisoners and non-Muslims was severe 
And it, 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 those are points of contention, even in historical records, um, about whether it was political intimidation or whether it was about religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, Kate Brittlebank, I, I guess she argues that the punishments were more about uh, intimidating the enemy and sort of establishing the political um, supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the forced conversions and the mass migrations um, meant a loss of caste and community. That means lesser chances of revolt and rebellion, um, and you could repopulate this area. She also uh, kinds of points out that the, these were the mass migrations were used as a tactic in the 1780s when the Tipu was politically uh, trying to consolidate his kingdom, um, and maybe some customs like especially the Nair customs like polyandry were probably anathema to. Tipu, which might explain the extreme punishments and migrations of North Malabar Nayars, uh, which is a highly contended point. So it seems like we can interpret it in many different ways. But my key takeaway is he was a shrewd um, strategist and king. And a lot of his actions are related to more towards that rather than um, the sort of the Islamic extremism that's being blamed against him but that's my personal takeaway in no way the most objective i know i agree too but um, so just think about it right like some of it is islamic but like you know it's also about not not being an extremist it's just about being a devout muslim if you came to north malabar you saw nayars which was the dominant caste in north malabar at this time they're practicing polyandry as in the wife can take multiple husbands right the women are actually uh, bare-chested, like, you know, they don't wear, like, uh, the, the upper munda that now people wear, but, like, you know, in in, in, not, in Kerala of the time, they never wore it. In fact, they didn't wear it until, like, you know, late into the 19th century. So, for a Muslim man, just, you know, it is really shocking. I mean, forget Muslim man of the 18th century. For us today, it's very hard to think of polyandry and uh, sort of the dress customs. So, for him, it was against everything that he believed in. Uh, rather than thinking of it as Islamic extremism, it is probably the actions of a devout Muslim who really be- believed mm-hmm. that this was barbaric. In fact, the British also actually, in the same time period, would comment on the customs of the Nayars in derogatory terms. Uh, so yes, I think there was mm-hmm. an Islamic tinge to his actions. But but the violence, the violence of mass migrations, I think it's Brittle Bank who actually says that he, he does that in the beginning of his reign in the 1780s when he was still like sort of expanding in this region. And the, the kind of forced conversions happened to the people who most rebelled. The Kodaga chiefs who actually did most of the rebelling, they were the ones who were taken away from their place and then converted because, you know, that was the easiest way to, you know, get them to subjugate. But yeah, no, I, I don't think it was... Uh, Irfan Habib actually said there was a religious religious militancy to his rule. I don't think that's the case. Let's talk about his death. Oh, no. The, oh, no. The, <laughs> I, I, so how did he die, Deepthi? What happened to him? <laughs> so here's the saddest part about Tipu Sultan's life, or rather death. <laughs> he doesn't die in battle. Like, you know, this person who from the age of 15 up until his death was fighting war after war after war after war. So this man who was often thought of as dead, who had like, I think mm-hmm. he had a bullet go through his thigh while he was in Travancore and he had to be carried away from the battle site. This guy actually dies because he was not preparing to fight. The British had entered his capital city in Sri Lanka, One of his generals had died fighting the British. And he had just gone out in his like house clothes. He heard that his general died, so he wanted to go and see in person. And on his way there, he gets attacked. And he gets severely wounded. And he's sitting in his palanquin, severely wounded. All his bodyguards have, are dead. And mm. then a British soldier actually attacks him and tries to steal 
his uh, jeweled scabbard, you know, and his dagger, which is all jeweled and jewel entrusted. So he tries to steal, and Tipu Sultan essentially was like, you know, no way, like you know, you bugger, like you know, you stay, you know your ground. And even though he was severely wounded, he basically took his dagger and wounded this soldier. At which point, the soldier point blank shot him, and that's how he died. A shot in the head because he stopped a guy from mugging him, like you know somebody will do in Chicago streets. You know, it's like that. <laughs> so, if you think about it, it's a really sad way to go for a man who just spent all his time in battlefield. Thing about his death is like the British actually was, they were not planning on killing him. They just wanted to capture him and negotiate a deal with him, which the tip, which Tipu Sultan actually probably would have agreed to, and he might have just lived had it not been for this person who uh, wanted to, you know, mug him. And in fact, at the end of it, uh, David Price, who was actually taking stock of everything that was going on um, at um, Sri Rangapatna during the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War, he actually says, "I hope it was." just a sepoy and not one of the not one of the british official soldiers because you know they wanted it to be like an indian sepoy or like you know some low ended small minded person who killed him rather than an actual official of the east india company so uh, so they themselves were actually taken aback by the death of uh, tipu sultan mm. and uh, while there was plenty of Uh, newspaper articles and playwrights wrote about his death it was dramatized it was uh, talked about well into the 1860s the tiger of mysore story uh, and he was made out to be like you know uh, a despot and the british said oh you know the mysoreans were so happy to have been re- relieved of this despot's rule but in reality uh, actual i account say that a lot of people wanted to be there to see him to to see his last rites and because they they actually he was fairly popular with with his own people so and his and his popularity continues after his death today we are talking about him in a podcast yeah. and it seems uh, there were caricatures that were made in british records where they compared him to napoleon which i think is a huge honor right so it's his legacy still continues i don't think um we can see tipu as a religiously militant ruler or as a benevolent ruler he was somewhere in between i think uh, well we can debate about that i just wanted to bring up one of his dreams because we didn't talk about his dreams much uh, from the khwabnama in one of the dreams he actually talks about dreaming that he suddenly heard a sound and he woke up from his palace and he came out to see that this big uh, pillar had fallen um on the temple which means the the ranganatha temple in sri rangapatna mm-hmm. and he talks about how he immediately rushes to the people the hindus who live around the temple to see if no one's hurt and then he sends people out to make sure that no one's hurt and then you uh, instructs his officials to go and rebuild and help in the rebuilding efforts of this temple um so there are instances like that even in his dreams if you look at his dream sequences where he is actually talking about hindu religion and non believers in in like a positive way he often talks about conversions he often talks about kafirs and jihad as well um, and when he mentions jihad he's talking about the ultimate war against the british but at the same time you also see him in conversation with hindu um, exactly ideologies so certainly a complex character is he a freedom fighter by the most simplest definition of whether he was fighting against the british he was uh, was he an islamic extremist maybe to a bit by judging his actions and the thoughts he has recorded in his own journal um but can we hold that against him that's debatable right and that's true for any historical ruler um in those times i think it i mean it's human nature i guess uh again um you know we as humans we want to make categories about people we want to see everything black and white where the black and white doesn't exist we want to put them in boxes where uh you cannot really construct the boxes around these um objectively 
we want to also, and I'm loosely using the term we, because it's also used as political propaganda, right? Um, it, a lot of what we see in controversies now, it's also playing into the hands of propaganda and uh, politics where people want to kind of advance their... I, I think it's also about why... Uh, well, the question I usually consider is why do we, as uh, in the 21st century, need to tag people in the 18th century as a freedom fighter for India, right? Like, you know, it speaks more about us than about them. So... Exactly. So that's where all this is coming from. Whereas if we see the history as objectively as it, we should, uh, we're just looking at him as somebody in that time and context. And like you said, it's he's a very interesting character. And I actually enjoyed reading about it. And Deepi, you take amazing notes. Oh, yes, thank you. That That's my specialty. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, just, just to end this on a note about the complexity of the figure of Tipu, there are different sort of prisoner accounts of Tipu Sultan, right? And so there is a famous uh, record of Cromwell Massey, and I love this quote. Um, he actually writes in his journal that this morning, and this is a quote, um, this morning, we are worried for our foreskins, end quote. Um, as in, he, he literally thinks he's going to be converted and, you know, his foreskin is going to go <laughs> completely away. And so, and so he writes that. And then, but at the same time, there are other accounts of how Tipu actually gave the British prisoners a special meal um, on the day of the coronation, of coronation for George III. So he actually said, this is the day your king's coronation is happening. So, you know, I'm going to give you a special meal. So there seems to be these two different and varied accounts. And in all um, honesty, it's probably both true. Both these accounts are true. This man probably uh, took away foreskins of some prisoners while he fed them uh, special meals and when they were released they were given uh, clothes and money uh, according to many accounts so Tipu Sultan a complex figure and maybe not um, India's freedom fighter because that is that is sort of like an ahistorical association but certainly uh, a, a rebel and um, a worthy enemy of the British and um, certainly a freedom fighter for Mysore to, to keep Mysore alive as a kingdom, uh, I think we can leave it at that. No, that sounds like a good wrap. Okay, that's a wrap. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Deepti from the Masala History Team. We're just setting out on this podcast adventure and we invite you to join us. We're going to talk about all things South Asia, history, culture, books, and other humanistic topics. Do forgive the temporary quality issues of our podcast we're currently recording across multiple continents, time zones, with less than optimal recording equipment and internet connectivity. But we do have terrific content lined up, so do bear with us during our phase of initial hiccups. Show notes and related visual and reading material for the podcast, as well as essays, book reviews, etc., can be found on our website, masalahistory.com. So it's goodbye from us then, till the next podcast. Bye-bye.